You are listening to National Security Law Today. Tonight, we continue our series on the implications of AI moving into the weaponization of new technologies like AI and the history of how almost any scientific knowledge can be weaponized. As we ease into the next phase of the global pandemic and watch events unfolding in Ukraine, many of us have begun to wonder about biological warfare, autonomous weapons, and nuclear weapons, and how they can upend our societal structures and claim millions of human lives. The entire United States intelligence community works in unison to prevent the next calamity from these killers. And at this moment in history, we appear to be staring down the barrel of autonomous weapon systems that conjure images from Star Wars. What are the laws and treaties that govern WMDs, and does any nation follow them? Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet, and my guest today is David Koplow. He is a professor of law at Georgetown University, who previously served as Deputy General Counsel of International Affairs at the Department of Defense. And in that role, he served as a senior legal advisor on biological warfare issues, including things as utterly terrifying as smallpox. He also served as special counsel for arms control to the general counsel, and he's authored several books, including Nonlethal Weapons, The Law and Policy of Revolutionary Technologies, and Death by Moderation, The U.S. Military's Quest for Unusable Weapons, and third, Smallpox the fight to eradicate a global scourge. David, thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you to discuss this grisly array of topics. (laughs) Indeed, it is a grisly array, but I'm hoping we're going to sound an optimistic note here. But let's lay a basic foundation for our listeners. Exactly what are WMDs? How do biological weapons, nuclear weapons, and autonomous weapons fit into or relate to sort of the global understanding of the concept of WMDs. So that's a good place to start because there are a wide array of different kinds of weapons that are worth talking about that you've mentioned in in the intro. One category is WMD, weapons of mass destruction. And that by itself is a generic that includes at least nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. Another category that I know is of great interest to you and to this series is weapons incorporating some measure of artificial intelligence or machine learning, weapons that have some degree of autonomy. A third category, also in the news these days, is cluster munitions, where the United States has recently agreed to transfer to Ukraine those kinds of devices, and they've been used in that conflict as well. So there's a lot to talk about. Uh, Yeah, it is a lot. It's quite an array. But let's move into the laws and agreements that govern these WMDs. Can you talk a little bit about educate our listeners what's out there that says, hey, you can't do this, or if you do this, there are certain rules? So there is a category of weapons called WMD, weapons of mass destruction. There is no official legal definition of what is a WMD. The best we've got in international law is a resolution from the United Nations General Assembly in 1977 that defines WMDs as including nuclear, chemical, biological, and radiological weapons, as well as any other weapons that might be invented in the future that have similar scale or types of effects. So 
all of those would be included in WMD. To many people, and I would include myself, to many people, the whole category, the term weapon of mass destruction is not really such a useful category because the components, nuclear, chemical, biological, are so different from each other, have such different effects, different principles, governed by different treaties, that it's not so useful to lump them together in the category of weapons of mass destruction. But that is a term that you see a lot in the literature, even though the weapons are more different from each other than they are similar. Okay, well, surely we are signatories. So we have laws forbidding maybe the transfer and development of these things. And surely we have signed agreements where we have agreed ourselves not to develop or produce these things, right? So you're just right. We need to operate on two levels simultaneously. One is the national level, where countries, including the United States, have comprehensive legislation that regulates internal production, stockpiling, transfers, use of any of those weapons. And the U.S. has statutes, and most other countries do as well, that specifically deal with biological weapons and chemical weapons and so forth. In addition, on the international plane, there are treaties that regulate each of those weapons categories themselves. On, in the case of chemical weapons, there's a 1993 treaty on chemical weapons that is a comprehensive prohibition for the development and stockpiling and transfers and use of chemical weapons and requires their destruction. And the United States and almost all the other countries in the world have joined the Chemical Weapons Convention, the CWC. It's got 193 countries that are parties to that treaty, so it's almost everybody. There's a similar treaty, the Biological Weapons Convention from 1972, that's got almost as many parties, 185 countries have joined that. And it too is a comprehensive prohibition on all aspects of biological weapons, the development, transfer, stockpiling, and use. On nuclear weapons, it's a more complicated story. There, the primary treaties have been bilateral, negotiated and joined only by the United States and the Soviet Union or Russia, that are the countries that between them possess the lion's share of the global nuclear weapons inventories. And those countries have for decades negotiated and brought into force bilateral treaties that regulate, limit, but do not prohibit nuclear weapons. And as a result of those treaties, the inventories of those two countries have been drawn down enormously from the heights that they held during the Cold War, reducing something like 85% of the nuclear weapons held by those two countries. In addition to those bilateral treaties, there is a new multilateral treaty called the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or TPNW. A TPNW was signed only in 2017, and it now has already attracted 68 countries. And it is a companion to the comprehensive treaties about chemical weapons and biological weapons. The TPNW is a comprehensive prohibition on nuclear weapons. And for its parties, it prohibits the development and production and stockpiling and use and transfer of nuclear weapons. But that treaty, although it's been joined by 68 countries, has not been joined by the countries that possess nuclear weapons or by the countries that are closely allied with those countries. So it's a prohibition, but a prohibition that has been joined by the countries that have already given up nuclear weapons. 
when you say the countries that haven't joined, so we haven't joined. The TPNW has not been joined by the United States or Russia or China or any of the European allies, the countries that depend upon the nuclear umbrella of the United States. Okay. And surely it hasn't escaped your notice that at this moment in time, Vladimir Putin and President Xi are trying to rewrite the world order and form alliances of convenience, if you will. Brax, some of these things that are intended to be a response to NATO, the G20 and the like, I don't see on any of their agendas at this point a discussion of scaling back in terms of any of the weapons that you've discussed. But sort of the, the hole that I see in what you just said is that I'm not hearing that there's a convention that deals specifically with the use of artificial intelligence, because it sounds like what you're saying is that artificial intelligence could be used to animate any of the categories of weapons described above, chemical, biological, and nuclear. And I would assume that any treaty or agreement or proscription on them would apply whether AI animates their use or not. So you're just right. The capabilities for artificial intelligence and the weaponization of artificial intelligence, although tremendously important, is new. And it's something that has not yet bent to international diplomacy. There are very few treaties that deal with anything like that at all. And this is an unrealized action item on the international negotiation agenda. And you're just right that because of the war in Ukraine, international diplomacy on new measures of arms control has been put on the back burner. And I think that's tremendously dangerous because diplomacy and international law always lag behind the developments in technology. The hardware is created before the laws that regulate it. And if law takes a pause because of the adverse diplomatic circumstances of the world today, the technology is not taking a pause and it's racing ahead. The United States has domestic laws about the regulation of autonomy in weapons, but even that is not sufficient to get a handle on this very rapidly developing and potentially very powerful set of new technologies. Let's talk a little bit about a concept that I think has its place in the world, though, and that is the idea of de-escalation of WMDs as opposed to the acquisition and development of them. Is there a meaningful history to draw on when the geopolitical situation has been such that we were able to get recalcitrant nations to come along under circumstances in which they don't feel fully subjugated? So the Chemical Weapons Convention, I think, is a tremendous success story of that sort. Throughout history, armies have used chemical weapons in international armed conflict, and sometimes with devastating effect. In World War I, chemicals were used across the battlefields in a witch's brew of varieties of types of chemical weapons, inflicting 100,000 fatalities and devastating a generation. In World War II, the partisans were very heavily armed again with chemical weapons, and everybody expected that World War II would see a similar massive use of chemical weapons. And for the most part, that did not happen, in the, at least in the central battlefields of Europe and, and North Africa during World War II. And the countries were so repulsed by the notion of chemical warfare that they set out to negotiate a comprehensive treaty. 
And that's what was generated in the Chemical Weapons Convention in 1993. And it has, has succeeded in instituting a worldwide taboo against all aspects of chemical weapons, the possession, the transfers, the stockpiling, the use. It is not 100% effective. There have been violations, notorious, horrible violations by Russia and by Syria in the fighting in Syria, by Russia and North Korea in assassinations or assassination attempts in their own territory and elsewhere. So the world is not freed from chemical weapons, but the treaty has accomplished a great deal in removing the specter of massive uses of chemical weapons of the sort that we saw in earlier years. And just about every country in the world has joined that treaty and destroyed enormous inventories of chemical weapons. So I'm going to give a little specificity to what you said, and I'm I'm hoping you're going to correct me, but a chemical weapon that was used in World War I, for example, was mustard gas. Is that right? Yes. And then when you refer to Russia's present use of chemical weapons and recent use of chemical weapons, one of the things that it sounded to me like you were referring to is their extraterritorial assassinations carried out. We've all heard about the poisoning of Navalny who was very challenging Putin and criticizing him a lot in in public. And he was ultimately poisoned, obviously, very clearly by the FSB. And then I believe you're also referring, when you talk about these extraterritorial assassination attempts to the attack on Andre Skirpel and other people in London who were given polonium-210, for example. And I'm not sure what was given to Skirple, but there were efforts to literally poison them where they lived. Is is that right? Absolutely. And in fact, one of the illustrations of humanity's unfortunate creativity is the incessant development of new types of ever more deadly chemical munitions. The types of weapons that were used in World War I, as deadly as they were, by today's standards, Those are seen as way too primitive and just not deadly enough. And therefore, subsequent generations of nerve agents have become much more deadly and would be much more devastating if used in large scale. And Russia has developed an even more deadly variant of nerve agents, the Novichok agents, that are the sort of thing that were used against Navalny and Skripal and others. And so the story, unfortunately, is great creativity in developing new, more loathsome forms of chemical weapons. It's a version of asymmetric type of warfare as well. And it sort of seems like it doesn't make Russia look too powerful, I don't think, to behave in this way and to deploy these things in the manner in which they have, particularly against individuals who would appear not to be genuine threats, at least not any longer. Let me ask you about our position with respect to weapons. Have we shifted over the years? And if we've shifted, has that sense that new presidents, new administrations maybe are not consistent with the last administration, how might that sort of affect our standing in any efforts to negotiate treaties and agreements that would seek to mitigate or eliminate the development of the kinds of weapons that we're talking about? So there has been a zigzag path where some presidents have been more proactive in promoting measures of arms control and disarmament, and others have been less interested in doing that. 
with chemical weapons, it's a fairly simple story because going back some decades, the U.S. military decided that it just did not want or need chemical weapons. They were just not useful on the battlefield. And efforts to rein in and ultimately to abolish chemical weapons generated surprisingly little resistance because the U.S. military's position was that we don't want these things. Even if somebody else had them, and even if somebody else were to use them, we would not want to respond in kind. It just would not be tactically advantageous to the United States to use chemical weapons in that way. And I think it's a similar story with biological weapons. Biological weapons were part of the inventory of the United States and other advanced countries. And in the 1970s, it was Richard Nixon who decided that the United States would unilaterally give up its biological weapons capability because they were just not useful weapons. That even if others held on to their BW inventories, we didn't want them. With nuclear weapons, it's a more complicated story. And the United States and others have not determined that nuclear weapons are not worth having. And therefore, the process of reducing and ultimately eliminating nuclear weapons has been a more erratic struggle. And some presidents have been more proactive in pursuing arms limitations regarding nuclear weapons, and others have been less interested. Right now, the agenda seems to be frozen because of the fighting in Ukraine. But my hope is that when that war ends, and all wars do end, when that war ends, maybe we'll have a, the opportunity to return to additional measures of nuclear arms control and pursue ultimately the elimination of those weapons as was achieved with chemical and biological weapons. Let's talk about two recent sort of instances or reportage about WMDs. The first one is that news outlets recently reported, I'm going to use the language that they did, which is that we decommissioned a cache of WMDs. Now, is that correct? Or did we do something else? And if we did something else, what was it? And what might have been our goal in doing that? I think what that story is referring to is actually an understatement when they use the term decommission, because what really happened was the United States finished the process of destroying the chemical weapons. The chemical weapons had been decommissioned years ago, and the United States had no capability for using them in any way in armed conflict, even if we had wanted to. But they were still there uh, and an enormous inventory that needed to be destroyed, both as a matter of domestic U.S. law and pursuant to the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention. And the process of destroying those chemical weapons took much longer and was much more expensive than anybody had contemplated. The treaty originally required that countries destroy their chemical weapons by 2012. And the United States was in the process of doing that, but did not finish the process until this summer. Just a couple of months ago, the United States finally destroyed the last of its chemical inventory and has joined the world in being rid of that cache of weapons of mass destruction. What, and so it was just a matter of catching up. There wasn't some sort of subtext here or some alternative motivation. No, nobody wanted to retain these things. The subtext is that the process of getting rid of them was just much more difficult 
and being attentive to environmental concerns and health and safety of workers in the communities surrounding where the weapons were held. That process took an awfully long time and has just now been completed. Took 11 years, apparently. (laughs) That's an awfully long time. And hopefully the war won't last that long. But something else happened, which kind of surprised me. But within days of sort of the announcement of this destruction, the United States agreed to supply cluster bombs to Ukraine. And in terms of our timing, it appears that this happened just months after. I recall hearing complaints about Russia's use of cluster bombs in Ukraine. Give us some context, just based on your you know, extensive experience in this area. What was going on here? To start with, what is a cluster munition? It is a device that can be dropped from an airplane or fired from artillery, and a large canister opens in flight and dispenses a large number of submunitions. And it could be dozens or scores of submunitions that then spread out over a large area and float down to impact near or on the ground. Cluster munitions have been around for a long time. The United States has used them with great frequency in many armed conflicts. But in the last decade or two, there's been an increased apprehension about the adverse side effects of the use of cluster munitions in two ways. One is that a cluster munition covers a large area. When the canister opens, it spreads out the submunitions over many square meters, over a large territory. And that means it's hard to be precise. One of the hallmarks of most of many modern weapons is the exquisite precision where the missile can not only hit a particular target, it can hit a particular window in a particular building. And with cluster munitions spreading out over a large area, that's just not the way that device operates. And so there's a greater danger that the weapons will spread beyond the intended target, perhaps to affect civilian areas, maybe adjacent to it. Second, and maybe even of greater importance, when those submunitions are released, they're designed to detonate either on impact with the ground or close to impact with the ground. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes the munitions fail to fuse and arm properly and they thud down to the ground as dud munitions. And when those munitions are duds, they sit on the ground, and they can be then detonated accidentally by anybody who comes along and picks it or picks it up or hits it with a vehicle or anything else for weeks or months or years after the munition has been dropped. And that's the reason why, as a humanitarian measure, People have gotten concerned about cluster munitions because of the dud rate and the prospect that some of those unexploded munitions will detonate months or years after the soldiers have marched away and after the war is over. And the victims will be a farmer who unluckily hits it with a plow or children who might discover it and maybe the munition looks like a plaything or by a school bus, or anything else that comes along later, might detonate the unexploded munitions. And so that's why many countries in the world, including many of the most traditional U.S. allies, have joined a treaty that would prohibit the use of cluster munitions. The United States and many other countries, including the countries that are the biggest users and stockpilers of cluster munitions, 
have not joined that treaty. But that's why it's been controversial, because many of our closest fighting colleagues are opposed to the use of cluster munitions and outraged by the fact the United States has now agreed to deliver thousands and thousands of those weapons to Ukraine. What would be a strategic advantage gained by such a a weapon? And would that do anything to give Ukraine the upper hand and perhaps advance its cause and end this thing? Well, that's why the United States has decided to, to supply the weapons is the expectation that they are militarily very valuable weapons. And one kind of application is the use of cluster munitions against forces, Russian troops, that are dug into trenches, that the cluster submunitions will fall down pretty vertically and might then drop into trenches in a way that artillery shells that come in at an angle might not hit the trenches that exactly. And so that's why the weapon has been desired by Ukraine is because in the conflict that they're facing right now, that kind of military capability might be useful And the apprehension that there's a dud rate that might mean that unexploded ordnance pollutes the battlefield for weeks or months or years thereafter, at least some in Ukraine are saying, we'll deal with that later. Right now, the imperative is to recapture this territory, and the cluster munitions might be especially valuable in that regard. But I think last week, Human Rights Watch released a report on cluster munitions And it's been covered by the media today, and we're recording on Tuesday, September 5th. I wanted to know if you had had a chance to look at that report and see what were some of the issues beyond the ones you've just expressed. I know, I believe that they cited some 900 plus deaths last year alone, the result of the use of cluster munitions. What are your thoughts on on that report? And it sounds like, I'm going to guess, any report of that scope was not drafted in response in a day or two to the U.S. supplying of cluster munitions. Obviously, they were working on this report well in advance of the public learning of this. Yes, this, this report is the cluster munitions annual report that's put out by a coalition of organizations that monitor the development of and use of cluster munitions and the implementation of this treaty that is designed to prohibit their use. And it is a major document and provides the best, most authoritative information about cluster munitions use and about the treaty implementation around the world. Tremendously important document. It's not done in response to the very recent decision by the United States to supply Ukraine with these arms and the use of those weapons by Ukraine. And so they're looking at really the 12-month period that ended a few weeks ago. And their report is quite sobering, that the use of cluster munitions by Russia and others in Syria and elsewhere has been quite devastating, and that the dud rate problem is very substantial, more so there because the Russian cluster munitions are inferior products technologically and have a much higher dud rate. And therefore, even when they are properly aimed, they generate a prolonged humanitarian crisis with the unexploded munitions lying on the surface for an indefinite period of time, often 
detonating when a civilian comes along. And that's been the problem. In fact, the news headline today is that the cluster munitions use in Ukraine has for the first time generated more fatalities, more injuries than cluster munitions use in Syria or elsewhere, which were the previous places where cluster munitions were used by Russia and others in the greatest frequency. In the last year, Russia and Ukraine have been using cluster munitions in Ukraine and resulting in hundreds, if not thousands, of casualties. Let's talk about technology now. We're in an era of rapid technological advancement. Everything is in fast forward. We've taken a leap forward in AI recently, really just with LLMs and large language models. But we're likely to do the same with quantum computing, I guess, in the relatively near future. When you look at these advances, given your years of experience and your participation in some of these negotiations over the years, how will these advances change the global understanding of WMDs? And how will it change our understanding here in the United States, do you think? That's the big question, and nobody knows. My starting point for this is that human beings have unfortunately been extraordinarily creative in coming up with a wide variety of new techniques for inflicting pain on each other. It might be that this is what our species does best, is to invent weapons to kill and injure and to destroy property. And there is boundless creativity and enormous budgets devoted to those enterprises. And artificial intelligence is the latest spin on that that could find expression in a wide array of weapons. One possibility is incorporation of some version of artificial intelligence into the mechanisms that control nuclear weapons in the United States or elsewhere. Turning over to machines any authority for the use of WMD would, in my, my judgment, be a catastrophe. But you can't say that it's not going to happen. Aside from the category of WMD, it's completely predictable that the United States and others will experiment with the development of artificial intelligence weapons that have some degree of autonomy. And that seems, again, almost irresistible. That there's some circumstances where the computer will be able to respond so much more rapidly than any human controller could, where a computer would be able to develop a firing algorithm for deciding which of my anti-missiles should I fire at which incoming targets in order to most optimally protect myself, doing calculations with a speed and accuracy that no human being could possibly do, and turning over that kind of decision-making to machines is upon us. And the United States, like others, has developed domestic legislation and domestic rules that would define the role of autonomy in weapons decision-making. But there is, as of yet, no treaty that would address that. And it's hard to develop such a treaty because the internal mechanisms, the internal operating procedures for an autonomous weapon be very difficult to regulate or to monitor that by an international agreement. Yeah. And right now, when China's economy seems to be doing so poorly and they're trying to align themselves so closely with Russia and all the BRICS nations, India, Brazil, everybody who showed up half of Africa, this probably isn't the best time to suggest they sit down at the table, especially when uh, President Xi is not showing up at the G20. 
Does being first, with all that in mind, does being first to develop any weapon really give any nation an advantage? Or does it just do something to sort of pump up maybe national pride? I mean, does it have any, any advantage in real life? Well, the answer to that has to be sometimes. Sometimes the first mover does obtain a definite advantage and is able to exploit the new weapon to a military benefit in a way that others suffer from being behind in the use of that technology. And there are plenty of instances of the first mover advantage in weaponry. Other times, not so much. And other times, the spiral of the arms race happens so rapidly that other countries follow along and develop not only the similar weapon, but even better weapons. And they're able to do that adaptation even more rapidly because the first mover has demonstrated that it's possible. And the second movers can then leapfrog over what the first has done. So there's a, a lot of different patterns to follow that way. And all you can say is you got to be cautious. It would not be good if an enemy had a new weapons capability that our side did not have. Well, and the Chinese have said they do, right? I mean, they've claimed that they have specific weaponry that we don't have lately. And unfortunately, I believe we also said publicly that we didn't have it. <laughs> Probably not the, the best response at the time. But uh, let's talk for a second about a concept that was bantied about <clears throat> apparently during the Cold War. But it was this idea of mutually assured destruction and whether or not that idea could ever dictate anything with respect to WMD policies. And maybe we should explain or you should explain what the concept of mutually assured destruction was. So the concept of mutually assured destruction was developed as a central matter regarding nuclear weapons during the Cold War. And the core of it is not that complicated. If country X uses nuclear weapons against country Y, country Y will respond in kind and inflict such devastation upon country X that country X would conclude it wasn't worth it. Whatever advantage we thought we might have gotten from striking first has been overwhelmed by the retaliatory blow. And mutuality of that meant that during the Cold War, both the United States and the Soviet Union were aware that whatever we do to them, they can do it back to us. And therefore, we will both be deterred from using nuclear weapons first. That seems to have prevailed. It seems to be the case that during the Cold War, that fear was an effective force in moderating behaviors on both sides and getting them to back away from the brink of confrontation. On the other hand, it's a pretty dangerous situation when you're at the brink and one step over means annihilation of both countries and perhaps the complete destruction of civilizations around the world. So even if the concept, the practice of mutual assured destruction gets credit for helping to avoid a World War III, it did so at enormous cost to the possibility of human extinction. And it also sounds like it depends on a relatively bilateral competition, that once it, the, the topography of this thing changes, you're not in a situation where that does anything in terms of deterrence. Once you well, introduce the, North Korea the, and Iran and Pakistan and on and on and on. Well, you're just right. The concept of mutual assured destruction 
requires you to believe in a series of things that you might not believe in. One factor is it depends upon rational choice by the leaders of both countries. And there have been plenty of times in history where one might not have complete confidence that the president of the United States or the general secretary of the Soviet Union or the, the president of Russia is in complete control of their faculties. Another condition for the standard application of the mutual destruction, mutual shared destruction model is rough parity in a bilateral structure. When you've got China today emerging as a substantial nuclear power, it's still not nearly to the level the United States and Russia are, but they're growing. And that tripart model of deterrence is something that the world has just not dealt with in the nuclear age. And we're going to have to come to terms with how that new geopolitical reality alters familiar models. What would you say, as you look at it, the world, and it is a, a new world order, there isn't the bilateral situation that we have seen for the last 50, 60 years. What do you think, looking out at now the introduction of autonomy, you're looking out at the next decade, and when you consider these giant leaps that we have seen in technology and the current efforts by all of these other nations to upend and rewrite the world order to the advantage of the United, disadvantage rather of the United States, what do you think will be our greatest challenges in terms of trying to prevent the development and deployment of WMDs? So for me, that's an easy question. The biggest problem is nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons pose the only immediate existential threat to the United States and to the world. They're the only devices that are capable of destroying the United States as a functioning society. Chemical weapons can't do that. Biological weapons, maybe if there's a, a global pandemic, that's a serious problem. Climate change is a real serious problem. But nuclear weapons are the one thing that could destroy the United States. And therefore, to my mind, the top priority of the United States leadership should be to address the biggest single problem, that is nuclear weapons. And it ought to be the top priority of the national leadership to deal with the one thing that poses the most immediate, enduring, severe threat to our continued ex existence. There are lots of other problems, lots of other things we need to deal with. And artificial intelligence is just one of them. But the one that could destroy us is nuclear weapons, and therefore the top priority ought to be developing a mechanism to reduce and ultimately to eliminate nuclear weapons from around the world. That's the only way to make sure that they don't destroy our society. And do you see efforts in that direction now as you're sort of watching the current administration, the past administration? Do you feel that we're giving the attention to this that we should? No, we're not giving attention to this. And that's why it seems to me that the need right now is to holler and complain that the world is not paying attention to this most pressing problem. It's understandable when the fighting is going on in Ukraine, it's real hard to get attention for anything. It's real hard to sit down and negotiate a treaty with a country that we're, uh, we're in effect opposing in the fighting in Ukraine. Right now is a very inhospitable time. But it's got to be done. 
And sometimes when the world is in a sharp crisis, like the fighting in Ukraine, it's moments like that when cooler heads realize we've got an enormous problem with nuclear weapons and we have a responsibility to make sure that the dangers of Ukraine don't lead to even worse dangers involving nuclear weapons. This is the time when the world needs to address those problems. And do you feel like elected leaders presently in the United States understand this threat and are taking it seriously? Or do you think there's anything about our system right now that is making it more difficult for sort of adults to be participating in the governing process, whether in the legislature or in the executive branch? Well, the partisan gridlock makes everything difficult. And these days, it's real hard to figure out how you're going to get a two-thirds vote of advice and consent in the Senate to allow the ratification of any new nuclear arms control treaty. That's a big lift to get to that level of consensus. But it's got to be done. I think when people pay attention to the problem of nuclear weapons, they've got to come to the conclusion that this is the big issue. This is what is jeopardizing all of us at a moment's notice. It's the one thing that uh, that has to be the top priority. Well, we will leave it at that tonight. David, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us tonight. It's been a great pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, we will hyperlink to David's books and articles in the notes to the cast, as well as to some of these international agreements that have been referenced and some of the laws that we've discussed. And to our listeners, we ask, what do you think should be the WMD policy of the United States? And would you change your mind depending on the scope or immediacy of any threat? And do you consider where any person that you might vote for shakes out on this and whether they have indicated that they think it's a priority? Thanks for listening. And we invite you to subscribe, like, and rate us on your listening app of choice. Share this episode with a friend and have an intelligent conversation about WMDs, one of which you consider the opinions of people who are not inside your own information silo. Strive to share your opinions in a constructive way, recognizing that America's national security depends on our ability to find a lingua franca in a time of social media echo chambers. You can find us on Twitter or X as now we're forced to call it, as well as other platforms under the handle at ABA NatSec. Have thoughts you want to share with us? You can always reach out to us by email. We're reachable at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.